0: Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labour and youth in Canada, and the best source for revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. Demands for a universal basic income are increasingly popular on the left. In this episode, Fight Back editor Rob Lyon discusses whether UBI is really a solution to the crisis of capitalism.
1: Um, does, does everybody know what, what UBI or a universal basic income is? It, it's basically an unconditional payment made to, made to all citizens. Uh, it's usually a, a guaranteed cash-based payment uh, that all citizens receive regardless of income or tax bracket. Uh, it's a payment that does not require any sort of work requirements or any other type of requirements. Uh, there's no means testing generally. And, and basically people don't need to prove eligibility to, to receive it. Uh, There are other forms of of UBI or or other things that are similar, such as a a negative income tax and other forms of income support, Uh, but often these aren't actually universal. They they usually target people below a certain income threshold. But UBI is being discussed all over the place these days, and, and we should note that there are proposals for UBI coming from both the left wing and the right wing. And superficially, UBI proposals can look quite attractive to the left. Uh, especially with all this talk of UBI is, you know, transformative economics or transformative politics or or the creation of a people's economy. So we want to make sure the comrades have a good understanding of our position because some of these demands for UBI can actually be quite, quite difficult to navigate. So when we originally planned this discussion on UBI, it looked like there was going to be a concrete proposal either from the Trudeau government or the Liberal Party that, that we could really sink our teeth into. And the reason we thought we could be discussing a concrete proposal on, on basic income in canada was was some of the noise coming from the trudeau government towards the end of the summer uh, which seemed to be hinting at some form of ubi or, or some sort of green new deal or or both and this was in late august when bill uh, morneau resigned as as finance minister and was replaced by christia freeland and remember that morneau he, he's a bay street capitalist he, he was a conservative element in the trudeau government and he resigned in fact or he was fired it's not clear over disagreements about the benefits being paid out during the pandemic by the government. So at our first press conference, Freeland said things like, you know, COVID-19 offers a fabulous opportunity for Canada to have an equitable and green recovery. And Trudeau was saying things like, we will get through this pandemic in a way that gives everyone a real and fair chance of success, not the wealthiest 1%. Also, uh, you know, there was talk that basically Trudeau's new plan would take money on a scale that had never been seen before. And Bloomberg News ran a headline in late August that read, Justin, Trudeau's, Justin Trudeau plots Canada's sharpest turn left in economic policy in decades. And they were talking basically about how the, the Trudeau government was signal, signaling the most decisive lurch to the left in economic policy in at least four decades. The article also mentioned that Freeland was being tasked with nothing, nothing less than remaking the country's socio-economic architecture. The National Post was running articles about how senior public servants were being asked to come up with bold and ambitious plans to reimagine Canada, and deputy ministers were asking about spending parameters and they were told that there were none. So there was a lot of talk at the time of a significant shift to the left by the Trudeau government, and it seemed like a package of some sort of reforms was being prepared while the, the right wing absolutely lost their minds over this. The Toronto Sun ran an article by, uh, by Candace Malcolm under the headline, if Trudeau's proposing socialism, the people must be allowed to vote on it. And, and the article really expressed how freaked out the ruling class was with all this talk of remaking and reimagining the country. And really they were just pointing out that this plan of the Trudeau government was in fact, total madness with the coming deficit and, and debt crisis. There's actually a really great quote from this article that I wanted to read. It says, In March of this year, when the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic, Trudeau followed other world leaders in shutting down our economy. He pledged to Canadians that his government would help compensate them for losses in their livelihood as a result of of his policy of shutting down the economy. Trudeau pledged to temporarily help Canadians recover lost income from a -a once-in-a-lifetime health pandemic. This reasonable proposition is now morphing into a socialist coup, where a scandal-plagued prime minister wants to re-engineer the lives of 36 million Canadians through borrowed cash and a utopian disregard for the future. Trudeau presented himself to Canadians as a friendly and optimistic liberal who more or less supported free markets and believed in preserving Canadian institutions. What he is proposing now is something totally different. Canadians elected a liberal and what they got was a revolutionary socialist. At least in Venezuela, the people knew what they were voting for in Hugo Chavez. If Trudeau wants to take Canada down the dark and ruinous path of socialism, he must directly put it to Canadians for a vote. So I guess if you believe the Toronto Sun, we should have been praising comrade Trudeau for his excellent work in preparing Canada's first five-year plan, but anyway. <laughs> Uh, for a while, it did look like Trudeau might be announcing, certainly not the socialist revolution, but some sort of Green New Deal or a UBI scheme in, in the throne speech that was to take place at the, end of, uh, at the end of September. But I think we should make it clear here, though, that, that while the right wing loses their minds over the prospects of UBI and massive debt and so on, there is nothing inherently left wing or socialist about UBI or Green New Deals. The implementation of some sort of UBI policy does not mean a fundamental change in capitalism, it doesn't represent a change in property relations and it doesn't mean socialism at all, far from, far from it in fact. Rather than a socialist policy, UBI is almost always proposed as a way of saving capitalism or as a means of papering over the contradictions of capitalism in order to make the system function more smoothly. UBI isn't about changing or overthrowing capitalism, but making it better from the perspective of its proponents, whether they are on the right or the left. The reason the right wing loses their minds is not because UBI means socialist revolution, but because, as we discussed in the last discussion, it's a question of who will pay for it. And the ruling class does not want to pay. This is why the right wing gets upset and shouts and screams about socialism and so on. But in any case, towards the end of the summer, there was talk that the CERB benefits, uh, the the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, that that it could be made permanent into some sort of UBI. But then what happened? The Liberal throne speech had some promises about childcare, which they've been promising since the 1990s, so we can forget about that. They have promises about pharmacare, which will go the way of childcare and be promised endlessly, but never implemented. And they had a promise on job creation. There was some vague promise to create a million jobs, which it goes without saying, seems highly optimistic and frankly unrealistic given the current situation. I mean, the only way that that the government could create a million jobs would be through widespread nationalizations and nobody is proposing such a thing. But more importantly, the throne speech didn't contain any so-called radical new measures such as a a Green New Deal or UBI. There was no remaking or reimagining of the country. In fact, along with insincere promises, the throne speech actually contained several counter reforms. In classic liberal fashion, it was actually a shift to the right after faking a shift to the left. The wage subsidy and forgivable loans for businesses were extended, which is basically a handout for the bosses. And CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, was transformed into the Canada Recovery Benefit, or the CRB, which, while it was expanded to include gig workers and the self-employed, it, the, the amount of the benefit to be paid was actually lowered from $500 per week to $400 per week. So it was ac- actually a counter reform. This, this reduction in the benefit was eventually reversed in a deal with the NDP, uh, but at the end of the day, the Trudeau government's program was not the socialist revolution the, the right wing had feared. Before the throne speech, Freeland had actually been consulting with bank presidents and Bay Street, of course, and other lobbying groups about this plan to remake the country. And Bay Street was, was blunt. They warned that this was not a fabulous opportunity to reimagine the country, and that more so- social spending would leave the country vulnerable to future increases in interest rates and inflation. Bay Street clearly didn't like this plan of Trudeau's at all. Uh, but it does seem that, that Trudeau and Freeland did finally get the message. Trudeau's now very clearly walking back from his talk of remaking and reimagining the country. Towards the end of October, he started to say that, you know, that the recovery benefits during the pandemic shouldn't be seen as permanent changes to the social safety net. He was saying things like just because the benefits are useful in a pandemic doesn't mean they'll be useful when it ends. And he openly said in relation to the CRB that it's not a measure that could be automatically continued in a post-pandemic world. And he was basically saying, he did say, uh, let's not pretend that something that works right now gives us stability. Alex spoke about the recovery benefits and stability in his leadoff already. And Trudeau must really be out of touch if he thinks that ending the recovery benefits is going to bring any kind of stability. The fact is that maintaining the recovery benefits also won't buy him any kind of stability either. And it can't be maintained indefinitely. But just because the Trudeau government is backing away from UBI and away from the idea of making the pandemic benefits permanent, this doesn't mean that UBI is off the table. The Liberal Party Convention was supposed to take place in uh, the Liberal Party uh, like National Convention was supposed to take place in mid November. And the top policy choice of the Liberal MPs was a guaranteed or universal income, basic income. The Liberal Caucus was openly calling on the government to adopt UBI in a, in a priority resolution for the convention, and they designated it as the top resolution, which basically guaranteed that it would have been debated and voted on at the convention and of the 50 priority resolutions for the convention there are apparently a whole number of them that were calling for some sort of ubi liberal mps and ministers who support ubi were publicly expressing hopes that that serb would be transformed into some sort of some some sort of basic income so ubi is a big question uh, for the liberal party right now and we should remember as alex pointed out as well the fact that the right wing of the ndp and the left wing of the liberals support ubi tells you that it is not a radical demand at all however we were very interested to see how this would play out at the liberal party convention but the convention ended up being postponed until at least april of next year because of the pandemic situation it's also interesting that there's some pressure for a ubi programming program coming from the senate of all places in april uh, this year 50 senators wrote a letter to the government now, they kind of framed the letter as urging the government to convert the SERB into a form of UBI, but the letter itself seemed to be more about making SERB permanent and not, not necessarily universal. But, but still, the Senate is investigating and costing various UBI proposals. So this discussion on UBI is real, and it is taking place at the highest levels of government, or at least the highest levels of the Liberal Party. We shouldn't forget that we also had the UBI pilot project here in Ontario, implemented under the Kathleen Wynne Liberals. This pilot project included 4,000 people, mainly in Hamilton, Brantford, Thunder Bay, and it was supposed to be a trial run for a wider implementation in the future. Uh, The program was supposed to run for three years, but it was cancelled after 10 months by the Ford Conservatives, who raised all the old tropes about how welfare and UBI make people lazy and stop people from working and so on. The fact of the matter is that UBI proposals have been around for quite some time, going all the way back to at least Thomas Paine, who, uh, who was one of the founding fathers of the United States. And uh, he was a revolutionary philosopher who participated in both the American and the French revolutions. In 1797, Paine published a pamphlet called Agrarian Justice, where he put forward the idea of a basic income. And people would generally agree that this is one of the first instances of a, of a proposal for a universal basic income. We actually, we actually mentioned this in an article on IDOM about UBI, explaining that Paine put forward the idea of a basic income essentially as a quid pro quo for the existence of private property. But it's, it's actually quite interesting when you put Paine's ideas in their historical context. Paine was a classic liberal of the Enlightenment. He was a radical, a revolutionary liberal, you know, the kind of liberal that doesn't really exist anymore. But he was a liberal all the same. And his proposal for a basic income is quite interesting in that he was counterposing his liberal bourgeois ideas on private property, poverty, and a basic income against the ideas of of the conservative and religious right wing, but also against the ideas of the radical left wing. And this is the origin of the idea of UBI. It's not left wing at all, and it never was. It was always designed to protect private property and shore up capitalism from the workers and the poor. Now, Paine ended up in a polemic with a, with a bishop in Wales named uh, Richard Watson, and this bishop had written a book called An Apology for the Bible, and this was a response to Paine's The Age of Reason, which was basically a philosophical dismantling of organized religion. But anyway, this, this book of the bishop, it contained a sermon called The Wisdom and Goodness of God in Having Made Both Rich and Poor. So basically, this bishop, he was putting forward the idea that basically God had divinely ordained who was rich and who was poor. And and he was basically arguing that there's nothing that could be done about the situation because it had all been decided by God in advance. So poverty was always meant to be and the poor were always meant to be poor. So pain was basically hitting against these ideas, uh, these ideas which were fundamentally the ideological justification for the poor laws. Now the poor laws were based on the idea that if poverty was divinely ordained, it was therefore a natural part of life that could never truly be eradicated and therefore it can only be managed and controlled to a minimum degree, of course, and in the interests of the status quo, i.e. the private ownership of the means of production. But what were the reasons for the material the historical development of the poor laws? Well, capitalism emerged out of the overthrowing of feudalism and using various types of enclosure, the peasantry was forced off the land and forced into the cities and towns to become wage workers. But how were they forced to work? The fear of abject poverty was one way. The peasants, you know, the peasants becoming workers possess nothing but their labor power and with no other means of survival and no property, the peasants streaming into the cities and towns had to find work as laborers in order to survive. This is the economic coercion behind the so-called free labor of capitalism, and this is why we often call it wage slavery. But having a mass unemployed, having a mass of unemployed workers is actually beneficial for the capitalist class. When there's a pool of unemployed workers, this tends to drive wages down because workers must compete with each other for the jobs that do exist, and they are thus not in a position to demand improved wages and better working conditions. But large scale unemployment also brings certain risks, risks of social unrest, riots, sometimes united action by the working class in the form of strikes. And this threatens the social stability that the capitalists prefer, and they prefer this stability because ultimately it's better for business. So the poor laws were not really intended to help the poor, but they were primarily designed to prevent social unrest, riots, revolutions, and all at a minimal cost for the ruling class. The poor laws were specifically intended to provide no more than was absolutely necessary to prevent social unrest. And so starting with the the English Poor Law of 1601, governments started trying to control the problem of poverty using income support systems. So again, the whole idea was to provide just enough to prevent riots and, and social unrest, but they couldn't provide enough such that it would be sufficient for the workers to have increased bargaining power with the employers, or they couldn't allow the poor laws to create conditions where, the, where, where social supports were, were preferred over regular work for the capitalists. Because an income support that was basically adequate, sufficient, uh, it, it would basically threaten the capitalist job market itself. So to fix this problem, the Poor poor Laws operated on the concept of what's known as less eligibility. This was the idea that poverty relief should be set as low as possible and the conditions of providing relief should be purposefully degrading and punitive in nature. The whole idea was to limit social support as much as possible to ensure that the supply of workers for the lowest paying and worst jobs would not be impeded. So less eligibility was literally the idea that the pauper, the, you know, the, the, the person in extreme poverty, should have to enter a workhouse, a place where those in extreme poverty could get housing and employment, and that these workhouses were specifically designed to have living and working conditions that were worse than that of the poorest free laborer outside the workhouse. This is then related to what's called the workhouse test which was the idea that relief should only be available in the workhouse and that these workhouses were to be uninviting so that anyone capable of coping outside them would choose not to be in one. So you might be wondering why am I mentioning the poor laws from like 400 years ago? Uh, well, the reason I'm mentioning them is because modern income support systems, whether it's UBI or the job guarantee put forward by the MMT they've always been based on the same essential ideas and intentions as the poor laws. They're designed to protect capitalism and to protect the private sector job market. Uh, So with UBI and a job guarantee, we actually kind of return to Keynesianism, where, where the state absorbs the losses and the private sector gets all the profits. The whole point of these systems is to manage poverty to defend private property, while at the same time creating a system of social income support that is so meager that it drives people to work for low wages for the capitalists to get them off social support. And this was basically how all the recent UBI experiments in Finland, Spain, and Germany have worked. And this again shows that even when put forward with the best of intentions, even when put forward from the left, these proposals are actually rooted in reactionary ideas, are actually rooted in the idea of saving capitalism. The whole idea behind these income supports from the poor laws, UBI, job guarantee, is basically to prevent what's called the welfare trap. So what is the welfare trap? Well, Wikipedia says the welfare trap theory asserts that taxation and welfare systems can jointly contribute to keep people on social insurance because the withdrawal of means-tested benefits that come with entering low-paid work causes there to be no significant increase in total income. An individual sees that the opportunity cost of returning to work is too great for too little of financial return, and this can create a perverse incentive to not work. So basically the welfare trap is the idea that if welfare and other social benefits are too good, then people will have no incentive to go out and find work where they can be exploited by the capitalists. This was fundamentally Morneau's concern about the Serb. This is what caused him uh, the big fight between him and Trudeau. The welfare trap is the very idea that stands behind the right wing opposition to welfare and the welfare state in general, and it's always used to justify cuts and services. This is exactly why Doug Ford shut down the Wynn government's UBI experiment, because he thought it was too good, that it gave the poor and the working poor too much. Uh, He argued that it would promote laziness, that it would incentivize people not to work. And basically, he, he wanted these people to find jobs, jobs where they could be exploited by the capitalists. The reformists and the liberals argued that by giving people some reforms, by giving them just a little bit more than proposed by the right wing, the poor will pay more in taxes and will have more money to spend on the market. The whole point of these reforms proposed by liberals and reformists is actually to strengthen capitalism. But let's go back to Paine for a second. So he was opposed to these right-wing religious ideas behind, behind the poor laws, but he was also responding to the ideas of the radical left, to, to Babeuf specifically. Babouf was on the extreme left of the French Revolution, and Thomas Paine was in France at this time, so he, he, knew, he knew who Babouf was. And Beboeuf called his set of ideas the system of the common welfare. He was a communist in all but name. And his program was a communist program. It wasn't really a program of fully automated luxury communism, but it was a communist program all the same. He talked about achieving equality in fact and not only by proclamation. And he put forward a society where there were no rich and poor, where everyone would have to work equally and share in the fruits of that labor. And he explained this basically by declaring from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. And for Babouf, the goal of the revolution was to destroy inequality and restore common happiness. Now, he had actually been radicalized during the rule of the mountain and the reign of terror in the French Revolution. And this is because he could see the hypocrisy of the bourgeois revolution. And he could see that private property and the rule of the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy before them inherently meant a division of society into rich and poor, into owners and laborers, and that this inherently meant inequality, exploitation and oppression. So his solution was to call for the abolition of private property as the only means of defending the common welfare, of of creating a society of true equality. So when Paine wrote his agrarian justice, arguing for a UBI, he was in fact fighting both the right wing and the radical left wing with his ideas. And it was all in the defense of private property. He wanted to prevent communist revolution, such as Babouf proposed, because basically it could be caused uh, by the inadequacy of things such as the poor laws. So before the advent of private property, Payne believed that all men had been able to support themselves through hunting and forage. When that resort was taken from them through the introduction of private property, they should be compensated by means of a natural inheritance is what he called it, which would have been about 15 pounds paid to to, to all men every year, financed from a ground rent charged on the the property owners. So really Payne was in fact proposing a sort of early version of universal basic income by, by taxing the owners of property. And he also speculated that on the basis of his universal income that crimes against property would decline sharply and that the poor would no longer question the property rights of the rich. So Paine's ideas were ultimately about protecting the wealthy and protecting private property from the poor and the working class. And it's quite interesting. When you look at this historical example of, of, of the bishop, Thomas Paine and Babouf, you can see that all the same main features of the debate surrounding income support and UBI today are there. It's the same debate, basically. Uh, the, posi- the position of the bishop was very similar to the position of the conservatives and the right wing today, basically that if you're rich, you deserve it, and if you're poor, you deserve it. And the right wing are very concerned about welfare and laziness, this so-called welfare trap, because they want people to be working and producing surplus value for the capitalists. Now, the right wing can be convinced to support some sort of poor law or income support or welfare measures, as long as it is totally at a subsistence level, doesn't create a welfare trap, and that it still forces people to seek work so that the workers could be exploited for profits. Also importantly, it has to actually, uh, indeed, prevent social upheavals The liberals and the reformists, like Thomas Paine, are willing to tax the rich to offer some redistribution of wealth, to offer social support, income support, even a universal basic income as support for the poor, precisely as a means of protecting private property, of maintaining the private ownership of the means of production intact, and of protecting capitalism from the working class. The radical left, the communists, like Babouf, should see that the root of the problem is in private property itself. The problem is capitalism itself and not the gross inequality it produces. So again, it's the same debate as it was almost 220 years ago. As Marxists, we shouldn't be proposing UBI or the ideas of Thomas Paine. We should be putting forward ideas like Babouf's, a position of doing away with private property entirely. We should be putting forward not UBI or this or that reform, but the socialist transformation of society. We should be putting forward the idea not of saving the status quo, but of a socialist society where there is genuine equality, a society with no owners and no workers, with no rich and no poor. But as we all know, it's actually not as simple as as that in, in reality. There are UBI proponents on both the right and the left, And we can't respond to every proposed reform under capitalism by simply saying we need socialism or we need revolution. Yes, uh, of course, we need a revolution. Yes, of course, we need socialism. But it's also our job to show how we can get there practically in the real world. So firstly, the right wing proposals for UBI are almost always reactionary and they actually always almost always mean a counter reform. The right wing proponents of UBI are often libertarians, which kind of makes sense when you think about it. Libertarians are in favor of so-called small government, so they say They see UBI as a way of slashing government expenditure. They openly argue that the welfare state should be done away with, so we should get rid of all the various forms of welfare, income support, and state-provided uh, social services, and replace those with a single universal basic income or basic payment. Hey Rob,
0: Liber- yes. can you just uh, slow, slow, slow down, slow down a bit? Yeah. Thank you.
1: So the libertarians argue that a single universal payment would be cheaper than all these government services, which could then be privatized and run on a for-profit basis. Other right-wing, non-libertarian proponents of UBI basically make the same arguments. When proposed by the right-wing, UBI is always a basic payment that will serve to replace other social programs and public services. So it's actually about gutting the welfare state and social services, not expanding them. So it's kind it's generally pretty easy to see these UBI proposals as counter reforms and to argue against them because these counter reforms mean a massive slashing of the social wage of the working class. Uh, take for example, Andrew Yang, uh, one of the candidates in the democratic presidential primaries. One of his main policy planks was, was, was UBI what he called the the freedom dividend, which I think is actually a great name, but anyway. uh, This was basically gonna be a a $1,000 payment uh, to every American adult. But Yang directly connected this freedom dividend with the consolidation of some welfare programs. And he openly stated, current welfare and social program beneficiaries would be given a choice between their current benefits or the $1,000 in cash unconditionally. Most would prefer the cash with no restriction. And he argued further, we currently spend between 500 and 600 billion a year on welfare programs, food stamps, disability, and the like. This reduces the cost of the freedom dividend because people already receiving benefits would have a choice between keeping their current benefits and the $1,000 and would not receive both. So the whole idea was about slashing funding to the other welfare services like food stamps and disability and so on. Uh, Milton Friedman, the famous monetarist, no friend of the working class. He also proposed a sort of UBI, uh, which he actually called a a negative income tax. And he also specifically tied this to the dismantling of social services. Uh, He said things like, we should replace the rag bag of specific welfare programs with a single comprehensive program of income supplements in cash, a negative income tax, which would do more efficiently and humanely, humanely what our present welfare system does so inefficiently and humanely. Interestingly enough, Friedman also noted about his uh, negative income tax proposal that it has been greeted with considerable enthusiasm on the left and with considerable hostility on the right Yet, in my opinion, the negative income tax is more compatible with the philosophy and aims of the proponents of limited government and maximum individual freedom than with the philosophy and aims of the proponents of the welfare state and greater government control of the economy. Uh, Might come as a bit of a surprise, but Nixon even had a sort of UBI proposal in 1969, which was based on Friedman's ideas. Uh, this was called the Family Assistance Plan, and it, it it did actually have some means testing, and it wasn't quite universal, but it had some of the basic features of a of a UBI. Uh, the Family Assistance Plan was actually passed in in the House of Representatives, but when it got to the Senate, it ended up being uh, amended quite heavily, and then finally turfed uh, by the right wing of the Democratic Party. And you know why they didn't want to they didn't want to approve this law because they felt that it would empower the blacks in the South too much and give them too much money. So recently, Brian Mulrooney has also recently come out in favor of UBI. And I think we honestly have to ask ourselves, if Nixon and Mulroney can get behind UBI proposals, how radical can this idea really be? But what about the left-wing proponents of UBI? Uh, historically, we had the Manitoba Basic Annual Income Experiment. It's also known as MINCOM. This was a joint program by the federal Liberals under, under Pierre Trudeau and the Manitoba NDP government under Ed, uh, Ed Schreier. But again, this was an agreement between the left wing of the Liberals and the right wing of the NDP. It ran for about four or five years. And then similar to the to the win uh, UBI program, it was actually canceled by the by the federal and the provincial Tories when the uh, when the political landscape changed. In the end, there was no final report from the program, but subsequent interest in the project has basically been around this question of the welfare trap. People, want, people are actually interested in seeing whether the people on the benefit worked less because of the basic income they received. Now, the results are actually not conclusive. They were interesting in that um, the, the, the amount of hours uh, worked was a little bit less than for the regular population, but it actually wasn't as high as in other UBI experiments. But anyway, it it wasn't conclusive because the the program was always intended to be short term, and that fact alone could have actually affected the outcomes. But there are other left-wing UBI proposals, John McDonnell in the British Labour Party, there's a left figure in the French Socialist Party, Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders have called for UBI in response to the pandemic. Although it, it, it's actually not clear to me whether they, they mean something like CERB or the CRB, so something that's temporary and, and not necessarily permanent or, or whether they're actually proposing uh, a permanent UBI. But the big question with UBI is always who is going to pay? In this regard, from the perspective of Marxism, these left-wing proposals can be a little bit more difficult to deal with than the right-wing ones. So for example, the Broadband Institute recently published a UBI proposal this was actually a fairly technical proposal all about tax reform and converting provincial social assistance services to federal universal programs and changing the way federal transfer payments work and so on. It's actually really not very fun to read. It, it actually reads like a business proposal. It's trying to convince the ruling class that UBI is the rational and more efficient way to run social services, that their program is the most efficient way to manage capitalism. Their entire argument is based on trying to convince the capitalists that UBI is really in their best interest. Now, the Broadband Institute's proposal does actually have a few reforms, and it mentions that that, that these more efficiently run social services should be paid for through progressive taxation and the ending of uh, tax breaks on capital gains and business expenses and so on. But the main thrust of the thing is, is it's physical, it's legalistic, it's constitutionalist, it's not based on class struggle, it's, it's focused on federal provincial negotiations on reforms. And it basically argues that the, more, that, that, that the more rational organization of social services will be more cost-effective and efficient for the capitalists than the current setup. Uh, in August of this year, there was an NDP MP, uh, Leah Gazin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name properly, uh, she called for for the CERB to be converted into a guaranteed livable basic income, and she had a little bit more of a much a uh, little bit more of an openly uh, progressive program for paying for UBI. Her program mentioned, uh, you know, divesting from corporate welfare, ending offshore tax havens, and taxing the ultra wealthy. Her program specifically mentions a guaranteed livable basic income must be administered in addition to. Increased investments in current and future government public services, accessible, affordable social housing, expanded health services and income supports meant to meet special, exceptional and other distinct needs and goals rather than basic needs. But even here, you can see the whole thing is ultimately written in bourgeois terms, trying to convince the capitalists that this is the most efficient and cheapest way to deal with uh, with poverty. And Trotsky explained the reason for this bending of the reformists to the needs of capitalism when he said the following. In practice, a reformist party considers unshakable the foundations of that which it intends to reform. It thus inevitably submits to the ideas and morals of the ruling class. Having risen on the backs of the proletariat, the social democrats become merely a bourgeois party of the second order. And this is fundamentally why even the reformist proposals for UBI are couched in terms of bourgeois legality, physical policy, and so on. They're not really proposals that are based in the class struggle. Now, uh, Gazan's proposal argues that, that cuts to social assistance ultimately end up costing more because it means lower tax revenues and higher costs for healthcare and the justice systems. The organizations that she collaborated with, collaborated with for her bill also couched the arguments for UBI in the same way, that paying a, a UBI will be more cost-effective because there will be fewer indirect costs uh, associated with poverty. And at the end of the day, these are ultimately naive demands by, by left-wingers who believe that austerity austerity is ideological, that austerity is a choice on the part of the ruling class. And these lefts believe that we can somehow persuade the rich and the wealthy to kindly hand over the money for the good of society. The left-wing advocates of UBI are really actually just counting on the benevolence and the philanthropy of the capitalists and, and you know, the establishment pol- politicians that represent them. But we we have to, you know, we have to be a little bit fair here. At the end of the day, the reformists who do call for UBI are calling for a reinforced safety net and the expansion of the welfare state funded through increased taxation on big business and the rich. So when raised this way, it's clearly a demand, like, like any genuine reform that should be supported and fought for. But this does not mean that we adopt UBI as our position. Our position is not for UBI. So really, you know, how should Marxists approach the, these progressive demands for UBI? Coming from the left, UBI is like any other progressive demand. We support the reform and will fight for the reform, but it is not our position. We cannot simply argue for the status quo, which means we cannot simply adopt the reform as our own position. We can support the reform critically, but we must find ways to raise revolutionary ideas among the workers and find ways to put forward our program. This means we give critical support to reforms and, and anything that improves the conditions of the working class is something that we can get behind and fight for. But we always have to remember to put forward our transitional demands or our full position, depending on the situation. This question of UBI is actually quite similar to our position on the on the on this on, on the CERB. We are in favor of the working class and small businesses receiving support during the pandemic. But are we in favor of this support in the form of handouts and subsidies for the capitalists? No. And that is what the government's response to the pandemic has been. One massive handout for the corporations and the bosses. The wage subsidy, the forgivable loans, the 700 billion dollars, the big banks and the corporations received, and even the SERB, the CERB or whatever, the CRB now, It's basically used to pay basic, people are basically using it to pay basic expenses, rent, credit card bills, utility bills, buy groceries, this kind of stuff. So general tax revenues being used to keep workers and their families alive during the pandemic is only another form of public subsidy for the capitalists. So while it definitely benefits the working class, many of whom could not survive without it, the CERB is also a subsidy for the corporations, keeping them afloat and allowing many of them, frankly, to profiteer. So that's what we have to look at here is what has been the results of of these policies of the Trudeau government. It's the same as always. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. So in this sense, i.e., that the Serb was a handout for the bosses, we are not in favor of Serb. Our position is a socialist position, not for Serb, but for no bailouts, for nationalizations under workers' control, for economic planning. Socialist measures such as these are what can provide for the practical measures we have called for to deal with the pandemic, such as no layoffs, full pay, smaller class sizes, the expansion of public health, uh, support for small businesses, for the working class to have access to paid sick leave, hazard pay, guaranteed wages, and so on. And when we talk about guaranteed wages, we mean that these should be paid by the bosses and not out of the general tax revenue. If the bosses can't or won't pay, they should be expropriated and the company nationalized under workers control. And it goes without saying that wages and working conditions would also be guaranteed by the state in these newly in, in, in these newly uh, nationalized companies or, or industries. So all these things, all these demands that I just listed off, these are things that capitalism cannot provide. But socialism through the socialization of wealth could provide these things. And that is what we must always bring to the fore. We are not opposed to the Serb helping workers pay the bills and our opposition to the handouts for the bosses does not mean we are in favor of workers losing Serb funding. We are not for Serb; uh, it's not our demand, but we are also not against workers receiving the benefit. It's a dialectical position. Taking away Serb now would be a total counter reform and attack on the workers. It would leave many in abject poverty. And so, and so we would be opposed to the government taking Serb away. But how would we oppose this? How would we frame our opposition? We wouldn't simply argue for the status quo. We wouldn't simply stop at saying, you know, hands off Serb or don't take Serb away. We would again put forward our socialist position, raise our revolutionary ideas, explaining that while Serb is not our, you know, it's not on our program, it is a reform that should be defended and that the bosses should pay for not profiteer from. So we could say something along the lines of, you know, taking away the Serb will mean pushing entire sections of the working class into poverty. The working class will not pay the bill for the pandemic, the bosses must pay. However, the CERB is ultimately a handout for the bosses and does not provide a long-term solution to the contradictions of capitalism exposed by the pandemic and the economic crisis. Guaranteed wages, hazard pay, workers' control for workplace safety are the only way to protect the lives and livelihood of the working class. And these can only be guaranteed through nationalizations under workers' control, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the same with UBI. If it's proposed as a progressive demand to be paid for with the increased, ta- with increased taxes on the corporations and the rich, well, we, we can support this as a reform, but we still have to put forward our revolutionary program. We are not for UBI in the sense that it's not our demand, it's not part of our program. But we are not opposed to workers receiving the benefit. Our position does not become a position for UBI. And as a progressive demand based on increased taxation on on big business and the rich, the, the demand effectively amounts to tax the rich. Yes, we agree with taxing the rich to achieve reforms. The bosses should pay for the crisis. We support this and would defend the reforms achieved, but this is not our political program. Taxing the rich to pay for reforms is the political program of reformism. Our political program is for the expropriation of the capitalists, the nationalization of the commanding heights of the economy under workers' control, and for a democratic planned economy. Our position is not tax the rich, it is for socialism. So we would also still need to point out that the UBI doesn't solve any of the fundamental contradictions of capitalism. We would need to stress that the wealth is most definitely there in society to fund a genuinely progressive UBI system. But we need to point out that the only way that 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 this type of reform would ever actually be introduced in any meaningful way is if the capitalists felt threatened to the point that they feared losing everything. So basically, it would be a situation where the class struggle had reached such an intense level, that the ruling elites offered reforms from above to prevent revolution from below. But even then, in such a situation, our demand would not be for UBI, but for socialist revolution. In that situation, why would we support a last-ditch reform to save capitalism when we could put when we could put forward a position for the overthrowing of capitalism? And this ultimately points to one of the main problems with reformist demands like UBI. The demand is rooted in classic reformism. Through their policies and program, what the reformists are really saying is that cap- is that the capitalist mode of production is fine. Private property is fine and must be preserved. It is only the capitalist mode of distribution that is distorted and needs correcting. Engels pointed this out in relation to During's ideas and anti-During. Marx pointed this out in the Gotha program. Lenin and Trotsky pointed this out dozens of times. This is the roots of the reformism of Bernstein and all the reformists since. So basically what the reformists are saying is that capitalism is just fine. Private ownership of the means of production is fine production for profit is fine. We just need to lessen the inequality a little bit to avoid the chaos of revolution. But all these proposals, which amount basically to taxing the rich to pay for social services or for a UBI or whatever, all these reforms only paper over the contradictions of capitalism. They do nothing to solve the fundamental problem. The reformist proponents of UBI fail to pose the question from a class perspective. That is, they, they don't actually analyze who owns and controls the wealth and technology in society. And most importantly, they don't bother to look at how they came to have this control in the first place. So SERB does benefit the workers, but it was implemented under capitalism by a capitalist political party running a capitalist government. That means that SERB is ultimately implemented to, to serve the interests of the capitalist class. And it would be the same for UBI, UBI implemented under capitalism would ultimately serve the interests of the ruling class. And it's the same with a job guarantee and, and, and everything else the MMTers are putting forward. So if a basic, if, if a universal basic income were introduced, it would be subject to the same pressures and efforts to basically render it insufficient or inadequate as the present forms of income support. It would come under the pressure of austerity. The needs of the capitalist job market and the readiness of governments to serve those needs would not change because of UBI. UBI and a jobs guarantee would function ultimately just like the poor laws, just like the idea of less eligibility and the workhouse test. It's trying to save capitalism from its own contradictions to preserve the private job market by having the state absorb unemployment and getting the working class to pay for the associated costs. Basic income means the commodification of income support. And it actually helps to increase the exploitation of the working class. It would mean that cash income support would be extended massively and that most people getting it would actually be low wage workers. Basic income would really be a wage subsidy for the employers who should frankly be paying higher wages and providing benefits anyway. And these are the things that we should actually be fighting for. This this is the class struggle. And so on this basis, you could actually see UBI in being an impediment to struggles for decent wages and increases in the minimum wage, because people could just say, oh wow, well, I, I get this extra thousand bucks from the government every, every month, doesn't matter. So moreover, in the context of austerity and privatization, these, these income supports, or UBI, would, would probably also be used to replace public services that are already under attack in the 50s and the 60s. Wages more or less rose in line with uh, with increases in GDP and productivity of labor. The capitalists could afford this because rates of growth and profitability were at historic highs. But that all changed in the 1970s. And since then, we have seen a massive transfer of wealth away from the working class to the ruling class. Wages in the advanced countries have been suppressed for decades to keep rates of profit up. For example, in the United States, labor productivity is up around 72% since 1973, but American wages are only up 9%. And it's similar figures in all the, all the other advanced capitalist countries. This represents a massive transfer of wealth. If the wealth distribution of the 1950s and the 1960s <coughs> had held until today, the average worker in the United States would be getting $1,000 per week more than they do now. Could you imagine? So in a context of low wage precarious work, a universal basic income leads to a situation where a portion of the wage bill is out, is now actually covered out of the general tax revenues. That is to say, low wage workers receive a portion of their income from the taxes that other workers pay. This means that the employers are, are basically receiving a wage subsidy and it allows them to keep wages low. Cause again, well, the state gives out this thousand dollar check every month. So why should they have to pay higher wages? This, uh, this blocks the struggle for living wages and lets governments off the hook when it comes to minimum wage and so on. So of course we should fight for massively improved benefits for the unemployed, for the poor and for the disabled. But rather than fighting for UBI, we should be fighting for decent wages. We should be fighting for the expansion of public services like healthcare, housing, childcare, education, public transit, all, all the good things. Fighting for expanded social services is part of the class struggle and would be part of the struggle for socialist revolution. UBI is essentially supporting the status quo. UBI is based on the idea of topping up wages out of public tax revenues. And this means accepting low wages, accepting precarious work. Social programs and public services have been attacked and gutted for decades. So the reformists have basically come to the conclusion that we should compensate for this with a universal basic income, rather than fighting against austerity, rather than fighting for increased social services, rather than fighting for the socialist transformation of society. So UBI is actually rationalizing, accepting, and acquiescing to austerity. It lets the bosses off the hook of the class struggle. And it is really an attempt, as John Clark said this, it was quite good, to make peace with capitalism and austerity. UBI means accepting the class rule of the bourgeoisie. It means accepting austerity, low wages, precarious work. It means just basically accepting the status quo for a meager cash payment. We cannot sell ourselves so cheaply by accepting UBI as a part of our program. The emphasis for socialists should not be on redistributing the wealth that has already been created in society. So, for example, through taxation or welfare and so on but rather we should be, we should be, we should be emphasizing uh, the collective and democratic control over the means by which new wealth is created. That is the means of production where value and wealth are created. The reformists focus on distribution under capitalism, but we are focusing on production itself because this is the root of the contradictions in distribution. If such a rational plan of production were implemented, then the question of taxation, inheritance, redistribution, welfare, all these things would quickly disappear. So these reforms that the reformists proposed would actually be pointless in the context of a socialist revolution. So for us as Marxists, the question of inequality, which is very important and it forms a big part of our propaganda, but it's actually secondary in this equation. At roots, our criticism of capitalism lies primarily not with the symptoms of the senile system, but with its fundamental disease, The laws of capitalism itself, the barriers of private ownership in the nation state, the contradiction of competition and monopoly, and production for profit. All these things stand in the way of the development of the productive forces, which is the real problem. And then Trotsky talked about this, where he said, The fundamental evil of the capitalist system is not the extravagance of the possessing classes, however disgusting that may be in itself. But the fact that in order to guarantee its right to extravagance, the bourgeoisie maintains its private ownership of the means of production, thus condemning the economic system to anarchy and decay. So UBI and reformism in general have no solution to these fundamental contradictions. And, and what are some of these big problems that the proponents of UBI claim it will solve? There was actually an interesting letter from a group of uh, 100 ceos who wrote to doug ford after he cancelled the the wind government's ubi program and they were they were begging him basically to bring back this ubi program and they listed a number of reasons for Im- implementing ubi which 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 the reformists also mentioned as well but what's interesting is that these are the very contradictions of capitalism that are driving the organic crisis of the system and these include uh, AI, artificial intelligence, and job losses due to automation, precarious and low-income jobs, globalization, the monopolization of certain industries like Amazon in the retail sector or Walmart, and things like that. So all of these things, these bourgeois CEOs, they recognize that all of these things are putting downward pressure on wages, which suppresses demand, and suppressed demand lowers economic growth. So there is a wing of the bourgeois that can see the problem here, that if there are masses of unemployed uh, workers due to automation, and the rest of the working class are all working at low-income precarious jobs and barely able to survive, who is going to be buying all the commodities that are being produced? How can the economy grow under these conditions? So from our perspective, how does a small monthly basic income solve these problems? How how does a $1,000 check from the government every month solve these problems? It doesn't solve them at all. Capitalism is creating the very conditions that are eating away at it from the inside out. It is digging its own grave and creating its own grave diggers. There is rising unemployment due to automation and now the pandemic. This combined with low wages and precarious employment leads to a fall in demand. Falling demand leads to a collapse in business investment and collapsing investment leads to rising unemployment and you get into this vicious downward spiral. This is a classic crisis of overproduction and one which is long overdue. The system itself is unraveling. It's coming apart at the seams and no amount of tinkering with either supply side or demand side economic policies will be able to overcome this. So how does UBI propose to resolve these contradictions? It doesn't propose resolving them at all. In fact, it's subsidizing the bosses by paying wages that they should be paying anyway. And it will only encourage the driving down of wages even further in order to recover slowing rates of profit. But again, this only eats demand, which drives overproduction, which drives down the rate of profit even further, and you're in the exact same spiral you were in before. One of the greatest ironies with regard to UBI is that those on the left and some on the right who who call for it, they openly recognize all these glaring contradictions present in capitalist society. But then they choose to turn the problem on its, on its head and they suggest every solution, but the actual solution itself. They can recognize and see the irrationality of mass unemployment alongside the, the, the crisis of overwork. They can see inequality increasing while technology is advancing. They can see that automation is enslaving us rather than liberating us. But they, and, and, and yet they, they, they accept these irrationalities as a given fact. Again, they're acquiescing to the status quo of capitalism. They admit to capitalism's failings, but they refuse to recognize capitalism as the root of the problem. So with, as with all reformist demands, the advocates of UBI are willing to propose you know, some frankly extraordinary and utopian measures as long as these do not challenge the one right that they consider to be the most inviolable of all, that of private property. For the reformists and the liberal UBI supporters, competition and the pursuit of profit may be responsible for the social evils of inequality, unemployment and economic crisis. But to suggest abolishing the anarchy of the market is pure heresy or, or blasphemy. And you know the reformists are always telling us we have to be practical, we have to be realistic. But instead of calling for a UBI, socialists should be using this question to expose the irrationalities, the absurdities and the contradictions of capitalism. Our demand should not be for a UBI where economic control remains in the hands of a tiny rich elite and where money continues to flow into the pockets of of parasitic capitalists. Our demand must be for nationalization of the key levers of the economy and for workers' control, for workers' democracy. Rather than demanding a basic income for those who are made obsolete by automation, we should be calling for necessary work to be shared out with hours of the working day reduced for all, basically for a sliding scale of wages and working hours. But this is only possible on the basis of an economic system based on needs, not profits. Furthermore, we should highlight the potential for a genuine socialist society where mankind and machine can exist in harmony, where we can develop a society of super abundance, where we can develop a society of fully automated luxury communism. The reformists put forward the slogan of a universal basic income to solve the worst excesses of poverty, automation, and precarious work, while leaving capitalism, private property, and production for profit intact. We must put forward the slogans of socialism for a society where the motto, from each according to their ability to each according to their need, can finally be realized in practice. I'll leave it there. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own so, if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.